Welcome to Cypher Vision. This episode is bursting the IP bubble, and the title has been chosen by our guest, Joff Wilde, who's editor-at-large of IAM and the World Trademark Review. Of course, as always, Frankie, how are you today? I'm great and looking forward to having a good conversation with Joff. Joff, good to have you here today. Welcome to Cypher Vision. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, this is the first time that we've had a journalist on Cypher Vision and a journalist who has been doing IP for 30 years. So can you maybe tell us how it all began? I began my first job in IP was editor of a magazine, which has now disappeared, called Copyright World, and then went on to Patent World, um, was recruited to be editor of Managing Intellectual Property, did that for a few years, went freelance, and then in 2002, began thinking about the idea that became IAM, and that went live in 2003, and uh, sort of been working on that ever since. World Trademark Review became part of the stable a couple of years later. And then much later on, I became editorial chief of another publication called Global Data Review. So it was a nice stable of three titles, which all were interlinked. Um, I'm not doing GDR anymore, but I've I've stayed with IAM and WTR. This might be a self-reflecting question. What do you think you've achieved across the 30 years that you've been in IP? The thing I'm most proud of is founding IAM. There was a lot of stuff out there around the turn of the century in the 1990s, which was about IP law and the latest law, the latest decision. But it became very apparent as I was covering it that IP was also becoming much more of a focus in terms of the business community. There was a lot of conversations around valuation of intangible rights. There was the growth of patent monetization, the Bowie bonds, but there was nothing that actually reflected that in what was then the print media. So it just struck me there was an opportunity. And the fact that we got that off the ground and grew it into what it's become is probably what I'm most proud of. We created a business with offices in three continents. We're employing people in three continents and we make a healthy amount of money. Joff, for the listeners who are not aware of the IAM community, what does the community look like? How big is it? Who are they? We have 28,000 subscribers and that's global. So I would say you're probably looking at a global audience of between 28,000 to 40,000. Our challenge is to turn all of those people into paying subscribers. In terms of the way that we structured IAM, what we felt was that if we could develop something that would appeal to people that ran IP groups inside corporations, people that were responsible for managing portfolios and creating values from those portfolios, if we could build something that worked for them, that would then attract the hinterland of people around them because those people wanted to be talking to each other. And for want of a better term, we latched onto the term chief intellectual property officer. So if we were giving chief intellectual property officers all the insight they needed in how to build portfolios, create value from them, the different ways in which they could do that, the developments which might have an impact on them doing that, if we could give them insights from their colleagues and competitors, all that kind of stuff, that would then bring in the ciphers, the lawyers, the brokers, the investors, the software developers. But our focus has always been, in terms of our core reader, the person we've always had in our mind, is the chief intellectual property officer, the person in charge of creating value inside a business from IP. Given your experience across the industry, what would you tell our listeners today are the key themes that you feel are the most important for IP? 
all your listeners and, and you, Nigel, and everyone else will, will know that one of the key themes at the moment is change. If I think back to when IAM started 20 years ago, and I think about the way that corporate IP functions were structured, and I look at the way that the service provision to those functions was structured, I can see kind of a straight line of continuity from 2003 through to 2022. I'm seeing in the next five years a hell of a lot of disruption, a hell of a lot of change, and that's coming from companies like Cypher, the data people, the analytics people. I think on a wider basis, there's much more attention now being paid to IP from a policy perspective. It's much more politically important than it used to be. You're seeing the beginnings of a much greater interest from the finance community. That, in turn, I think is going to have an impact on the way in which businesses themselves view intellectual property. And that, in turn, inevitably is going to have a massive impact on people who are charged with managing and creating value from intellectual property and the people that provide services to them. I think that straight line that you might see as a kind of a gradual slope from 2003 to 2022 is going to become a cliff face that will need to be climbed by everyone that is in IP at the moment and people that are not able to make that climb. However good they are now, I think they're going to very quickly find themselves left behind. You also talked a little bit around data and analytics. Is that going to be part of that steep cliff climb that people need to get their head around? Absolutely. It means inevitably there's more and more data becoming available. As the technology advances, the ability to go in and extract information is becoming much more honed. There's just more data available in the first place. The ability to sort of choose which data to use, what to make of that data, I think is going to be absolutely pivotal. You think about things like investment decisions. In the old days, if you were going to go out and buy five or six crucial patterns, you might need to buy a portfolio of five or six thousand to get those five or six. Now you've got the ability to hone into a portfolio and actually identify the specific patterns that will create the value and build a strategy around those patterns. And that's going to have a massive change in terms of the transaction marketplace, but I think it's also going to have a huge impact in terms of the creation of patents as an asset. If you can identify much more easily where the value is, then inevitably that's going to attract people to make investment decisions around it. That wasn't available five years ago, but the, the rising data and the, and the ability to analyse that data has changed the game. And Nigel, you'll know, it's only going to become more powerful in the future, isn't it? Well, certainly when you talk about evolution of an asset class, all the work you've done which effectively asks the question whether intellectual property is an asset class, you've got to behave like one. And therefore, you've got to have clear line of sight of ownership. You've got to have clear line of sight of the transactions relating to it. But of course, I agree with you. You can't be an analytics company, which is what Cypher is, unless there's high quality data. And you can't get to the right answer, or at least to the best answer, unless you have as much of it as possible. So we speak a lot about transparency openness. And I think regulators need to listen to these kind of conversations to make more data available. And there's great work going on in the IP5, which is a set of the five largest patent offices in the world. But it also requires patent owners to cooperate. You can't wish transparency unless you're willing to be transparent. If you want to go and get a fair return for your investment, then be willing to be open about transactions and other activities going on around it. I would actually go beyond that. I think at some point, if patent owners themselves don't 
decide to become transparent, they're going to be told to be transparent. And I think that's part of the whole policy game, that you look at the conversations that are beginning to be had around things like the influence that China has over the growth of technology or ownership of technology and and intellectual property. Policymakers want to know who owns the patents because the patents are at the root of it all. And if people aren't volunteering that information, at some point it's going to become compulsory to do it. And I know you're involved in a transparency initiative, Nigel, but for me it's makes much more sense to do this felt voluntarily than to have it forced upon you. I've mentioned policy. It's becoming much more of a focus. And if the IP community doesn't understand that, it's going to have decisions foisted on it that are going to prove very unpopular and very difficult to work through. Josh, you touched on China there. What what do you see the trends in terms of the global landscape in China? For the first few years, no one talked about China except about counterfeiting and piracy and things like that. We opened our office in Hong Kong in 2012. And it's really over the last 10 years that China has become a very serious player in the the world of patents. And a lot of talk has been around the theft of trade secrets and the theft of intellectual property. And there's absolutely no doubt that's happening on a large scale. But I think my one observation on that is that China is doing what all fast-growing developing countries have always done. And that's appropriating as much intellectual property to themselves as possible. I think the difference between China and all the countries, including the US and Japan and all those other countries that did it in the past, is that China's the first one to be doing it in the fully connected digital age. And so the ability to go out and appropriate IP is now much greater than it ever was. But beyond that, I think we can probably over-obsess about China and blame China for everything when actually a lot of the problems or potential problems that we have have been caused by ourselves. China didn't force American companies to basically sit out the standard setting process for 3G, 4G and and 5G. Those were decisions that US companies took themselves. China didn't force the US to essentially end the right to exclude that comes with the patent. That was eBay v Merck exchange. That was a decision taken by the United States judiciary. China isn't currently forcing the US and the European Union to entirely rethink their SEP licensing regimes. Those are decisions that the European Union and the US have taken. China didn't force European and American companies to overextend their supply lines and become too reliant on chip suppliers from Taiwan and manufacturing in China and other parts of the world. China is doing a lot of things that are very negative, but also we have taken, as the West, a hell of a lot of decisions that have perhaps caused ourselves a lot of problems. We've also lost sight of the fact that we have a permanent competitive advantage over China in that we are free societies and that we can ask questions of authority. We can explore the limits of human knowledge in a way in which most people in China can't do. And it's that ability to ask those questions and to make that exploration that in the end is what delivers fundamental disruptive innovation. You mentioned about the EU and the US looking at changing the SEP process and standards. What do you feel about that? It concerns me because we've got to where we are today with 
the system that we have now. Where we've got to today is two years of lockdown, connectivity around the world, everyone being able to talk to each other, businesses still functioning, jobs being maintained, families being able to talk to each other, machines interoperating with each other. What the current system has delivered so much and what worries me is that we might put that in peril and not actually know that we're going to end up with something better. We might well end up with something worse. And the implementer, the people that implement SEPs are always going to have a louder voice than the people that create them in the first place because there's more implementers than there are originators. Joel, some of uh, our listeners hear us talk about SEPs, and it sounds like jargon, but SEP stands for Standard Essential Patterns. But for consumers, it means the ability to buy a device that will connect to another device, irrespective of who or where it's manufactured. So to what extent are the legal issues somewhat of a of a sideline in as much as you've already spoken about these companies, Nokia and Ericsson, spending billions developing these standards? And we've got users, implementers, as you call it, the correct term, implementers selling devices and making profits. So isn't it um, somewhat storm in a teacup because it's just an economic trade? And as you say, last time I looked, I wasn't having any problem buying any connected device. So is the system broken or is it just a reliving of the smartphone wars in the 80s where there's a lot of heat and light? At the end of the day, just figure it out, guys, and come up with an economic settlement. Absolutely. The system clearly isn't broken because I look at my iPhone I look, I think of what my phone was like 15 or 20 years ago. I think of all the things I can do with it now. I think of the price I'm paying for it. And I'm thinking, you know, we have taken massive leaps forward. This is not a market that is being ruined by high prices and high licensing fees. And I also think that licensors have every incentive to want to make their licensing rates as attractive as possible because they want as many people as possible to be licensing. I would prefer the policymakers to stay out of it because I just worry that they are going to get influenced by stuff they shouldn't be influenced about. But if they're going to be involved, they have to understand exactly what has been delivered up to now and why it's been delivered. You spend your time talking to a lot of the leaders and the influencers who are leading this discussion about standardisation, not only in telecoms, but also in video coding and, and many other standards in China and across Europe and in the USA, why are we finding it so difficult to come to any kind of resolution quickly? My sense is that a lot of the decisions that get made are made at a level above the IP function. And that a lot of the decisions are made by people that have religious and inverted commas views on patents or on profits or on free markets and they don't actually listen enough to the IP people on both sides of the argument if the IP people were left to it I think there would be much more of a chance to get things done but that goes back to my point before IP is now too important to leave to IP people. We talk a lot about communication especially at Cypher and you've mentioned communicating to whether it be investors, whether it be boards. How does the IP professional take that forward? IP people are very comfortable talking in long words and technical terms and and Latin legal phrases. And that's great when you're talking to each other. But as soon as you start having conversations with people outside the bubble, it all falls to pieces. 
And if I look at the major policy debates of the last few years, think about the biotech and software, biotech directive and software directive controls in the European Union, the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, the whole issue around access to medicine and AIDS patents in the 1990s. I think about the debate around patent trolls in the US. And I think about now about the SCP debate. All the running in all those debates was made by people that wanted to reduce patent rights. And they were able to make the running because they understood who their audience was. And they were able to frame their language in a way that appealed to that audience. I, I remember covering access to AIDS medicines, big controversy in South Africa and other countries. And you would go to people that wanted AIDS patents to be waived and to make all the medicines available to everyone. You went to them and asked them for their opinion or their, their perspective. They would send you a one-page fax with five or six bullet points outlining in plain English, we want this, we want this, we want this, and we want this. You go to the other side, you go to the pharma group, someone would phone you back and spend an hour talking to you in the most obscure terms about arcane patent law. Who's going to win that argument? It's the people that speak in plain English every single time. You've got to grab attention that people will understand and issues that people will understand outside the IP bubble. We need to be talking about words like fairness and innovation and growth and jobs and security and wealth. And you tie your arguments to those things. And if you start doing that, on a regular basis, why is patent protection important? Because it creates wealth, because it spurs innovation, because it creates jobs, because it creates tax revenues. That's why it's important, not because it gives you the right to exclude people from the marketplace. There's definitely an opportunity there. I think that the fundamental thing about IP is that it underpins many of the key drivers of the 21st century economy. You think about things like data, you think about content, you think about innovation and invention, you think about brand, all those are facilitated to an extent by IP rights or related rights. So we're talking about something that is of fundamental importance to the global economy. And that is an opportunity. If you can frame your argument in those ways, if you can frame the way in which you address the policymakers, the business people, the general public in those terms, then inevitably you're going to get a hearing because you're talking about things that matter to them on a day-to-day -day basis. What does the future hold for the IP function? How would you describe the next 10 years for IP? I think there's just going to be massive change. That We've talked about it already, the rise of data, the ability to analyse that data, where IP sits inside business and the importance of IP to business the demands that IP owners are going to be making of their service providers and, and, and lawyers, all of that is going through fundamental change. And if people don't embrace that change, then they are going to be left behind. You could be a brilliant patent attorney, but if you don't understand the way in which your client thinks, if you don't understand the context, the business context within which your client is working, and if you don't understand the political environment within which that business is operating, then you're not going to be able to provide the advice that that client needs. And if you're not able to provide that advice, then you're not going to get the instruction. It will go to somebody else. And for me, it's that simple. Change is not an option. Change is something that you have to accept is happening and you have to adapt accordingly. Normally, we ask our guests to go and sum up the conversation with a cipher vision or a key takeaway, but maybe that was it. 
don't think embracing change is merely an option. It's not. There is a revolution going on out there, and either you understand why and how, and you adapt accordingly, or you're going to get left behind. And that's no matter how good you are at doing what you do now. But if you don't adapt, then you are finished. But maybe there's a positive in that because there's an opportunity because the opposite of that is those who do change will bring around positive benefits for the economy. Absolutely. There is so much opportunity out there because IP and everything that moves around it is only going to get more important in more parts of the world. It's a fantastic time to be involved as long as you understand what's going on. Quality journalism is not limited to the reporting of news, but has the power to influence public opinion and policy. Over the last 20 years, IP strategy has shifted from a catchphrase to a core feature of business strategy. But it's clear there is still way too much introspection, too much managing patterns for internal admiration. The future lies in a much wider and deeper understanding of intangible assets, the ownership of which will dictate the success of companies, sectors, and countries. Joff, the intellectual property community owes you a great deal for helping the issues of the day access the oxygen they need to breathe, develop, and evolve. As you transition away from IIM, the platform you build, I've no doubt that you will continue your mission to improve understanding of what remains a constantly changing and intriguing area of business, finance, and law. Thanks, Joff, for the conversation. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Cypher Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts about today's episode on bursting the IP bubble.